0: What keeps you going? Where do you get your motivation? Whether you just want to be the best you can be or the best there ever was,
1: we're here to keep you inspired. Conversations with today's top fitness influencers, coaches, athletes, and bodybuilding professionals.
0: This is Inspired Fitness. Here's your host, Sean Fuderer. Welcome to the Inspired Fitness Podcast. This episode is sponsored by Flexigenics. Every year, thousands of people undergo unnecessary joint and knee surgeries. Flexigenics was created to offer the very best in non-surgical solutions that allow you to get back to doing the activities you love. Before deciding on surgery, schedule a consultation and explore non-surgical options. I have personal experience with Flexigenics to treat osteoarthritis and tendon damage. I can confidently endorse their hyaluronic acid and PRP solutions. Welcome back to another episode of the Inspired Fitness Podcast. I'm joined today by my co-host, Kimberly Helm, along with our very special guest. He's six-time Ironman triathlon world champion. He's been deemed the greatest endurance athlete of all time by ESPN. He's the legendary Mark Allen. Mark, thanks for
2: joining us today. Wow, those those are some <laughs> titles.
1: <laughs> <laughs> They're significant accolades.
2: Yeah, so, sometimes I can't believe that I actually... Earned all of those things, you know, and like growing up I, as a kid, I was, I was kind of the little skinny guy that, you know, was last to pick when you had to pick the teams for the softball in, in elementary school. And, you know, I was never the fastest or strongest at anything growing up. From the purely physical side of things, I, I never had. I was not the kid that everybody's going, wow, someday you're going to be like this amazing athlete. You know, they, they saw that I love sports. I loved athletics. I, I swam as a kid. And so they could see I had that passion for, you know, doing physical stuff. But as far as looking like, oh, ooh, this guy has that genetic toolbox. that's going to make the difference. <laughs> not in a million years. So it, it's just fun to see how life can evolve from seemingly nothing into something extraordinary.
0: Kim has said the same thing about my physique when it comes to weightlifting. <laughs> in all seriousness, you just mentioned that you played sports and you swam as a kid, and if I've if I've understood your history, you actually swam competitively in college.
2: Yeah, I started swimming when I was 10 years old. I saw the the Mexico City Olympics on on television and it was the first Olympics that I had ever seen, 1968 you know, I was just mesmerized because uh, as you know, Olympics, you've got all of these top athletes in all of these sports doing these amazing things and to have it consolidated into like, you know, this two week thing. And and the, the piece that really just captured me was the distant swimmers, because at that point in my life, I was 10 years old. I, you know, to go one lap of a pool was like a near death experience for me, you know? And so here's these swimmers going back and forth and back and forth. And I just, I couldn't believe it. Like, how can they do that? Shortly after the Olympics, there was an advertisement in the local newspaper for tryouts for the local swim team. And and my mom said, why don't you, why don't you go and just try out? You were really, you know, you really love those swimmers. And I'm like, I can't do that. And she goes, just, just go, you know? And so I went and, and, and I showed up at the pool and, you know, the, the swim team was, the kids are going back and forth and back and forth. I'm like, geez, you know? And they said, well, just get in and swim a couple laps. I'm like, "Ah," you know, but I actually swam a hundred. You know, I stopped at each wall, but I swam a hundred. I'm like, wow, you know, anyway, that, that sort of went all the way through college when I was about 22, but I never, I never did anything super extraordinary as a swimmer. You know, I was, I was kind of. Good by default and not great at all. You know, I was I was never like a new newsworthy swimmer. I never made it to Olympic trials. Forget about even qualifying for the Olympics. The piece of it that I loved, and I think this served me really well when I got into triathlon, was I just loved that feeling of just improving where I was at by a little bit. You know, so like if I could just get two tenths of a second faster on my hundred back, or you know, three tenths faster on two hundred IM, or whatever it was that was like this feeling of like wow that was so great you know i associated sport with personal personal performance m- much more than i associated sport with overall finishes or over overall placings or overall times or, or or any kind of like real greatness you know the people would go wow you're better than everybody else and and so sport was just this thing that i did because it was community you know i love the the kids that i swam with i loved again that feeling of personally getting better on my scale of good. When I got into triathlon, I think that that served me well, because, you know, right away, I I saw that from the very beginning, when I started triathlon, I was I was 24 years old, I'd been out of college for two years. And I, I saw the Ironman on television in 1982. And again, it, it mesmerized me, it was sort of that thing of like, Oh my God! How can people do that? How can they swim 2.4 miles, bike 112, run a marathon? And when I was I was literally I was watching this on Wide World of Sports, February 1982, and Jim McKay, the announcer of the program, he you know I, I turned on the TV late. I didn't see the whole intro to it, so I didn't quite know what was going on because I'd never heard of Ironman triathlon, any of that. And he recounted the distances, and I'm thinking how many days does it take him to finish that damn thing? I'm
1: like,
2: oh my God, it must take like two or three days. And then, of course, he said, you know, they start at seven in the morning and they have to finish by midnight, 17 hours later. And, you know, my brain just goes like, ow. Um, But I obviously, you know, I I watched the show and was just completely enthralled by it. And, and, you know, I saw these, seemingly ordinary people crossing that extraordinary finish line and about two weeks later I thought you know what I want to go there and see if I can be one of those finishers and that was that was the initial dream just see if I could finish the race nine or ten months later I was actually on the start line of the Ironman doing what I thought was going to be my first and last Ironman but it ended up being the first of many that I did over 15 years as a professional.
0: As I was going through your history, 1982 stood out to me as, according to Wikipedia, that was one of your first official races. That had to be a very humbling experience, that first one. Do you remember what you, what
2: you felt in that first race? Well, it was humbling in, in more ways than probably you would think. Like I said, I'd only trained for a number of months leading into it. But, you know, at 24, you feel like, hey, I can do anything in like no no amount of time. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Not in a million years did I know if I was ready or not ready. There were no coaches back then. The sport was very young. It was only four years old. I hooked up with a buddy who was a cyclist. I Looked in, you know, running magazines and saw what you had to do to get ready for a marathon. And I had the swimming part down because I was a swimmer. I trained with a couple people who were actually going to be doing the race that year also in San Diego where I was living. So anyway, I I showed up and, you know, my my outward goal was to be to finish the race, which I thought if I could do that, clearly that is gonna be amazing, right? I mean, especially back then, I only knew like two people who'd ever finished that race. So and both of them were in San Diego and both of them were people I was training with. My secret goal was to be top 100. I thought, you know, if I really have an amazing day and I, I don't know why I thought I could be top 100, but that was my secret goal that I didn't tell anybody. Well, fast and just forward for, for the
1: audience, for the audience purposes, this is about out of, I mean, the, at, at that time, how many people will approximately were there, in the race?
2: There were about a thousand people in the race, Okay, you know, so it wasn't like today where you know, nowadays they they have to cap it because they can only fit so many bikes on the pier in the transition area in, in Kona where, you know, next to the ocean where the race takes place and people, you know, from all over the world are entering events to try to qualify to get there. So it's super competitive. Back then you called up the Ironman office, they sent you the application, you sent it back with a check and a headshot and you were in the race. And that was so, that was how complicated it was. Like, Anybody could have gotten in, and I was one of those anybody, <laughs> right? The race started at 7 a.m. and I was floating in Kailua Bay, just like completely scared out of my mind, you know. Like, what am I what have I gotten myself into? I, I was looking at the line of buoys and I thought, okay, I'm a kind of a, I feel like the swimming is probably gonna be my strong point today. And so I I headed out kind of fast, but I was getting like completely swarmed by all of the other swimmers, like they were swimming over me and on top of me and shoving me under the water. And I'm like, I'm going to die in the opening moments of this stupid sport, you know, like, and I I totally panic. I'm I surf, you know, but so for me to panic in the water was just like, so anyway, I just started sprinting as fast as I could to try to get away from everybody, you know, like sprinting the opening moments of a race, that's going to take 17 hours, probably not a good strategy, right? You have to pace yourself. But anyway, survival trumps everything the swim is out and back so you can see this boat that's anchored 1.2 miles south along the coast that you you swim toward you swim around it and then you come back for the second half by the time i got to the boat i'd actually found kind of like a a, an open spot in in that line of swimmers and there was a guy who was cutting a pretty steady course through the water and i just got on his feet and i was just kind of like all right just relax like this is you're going to be okay. This is the only time you're doing this crazy thing. You know, just get through the swim, get through the bike, get through the run. We headed back for the second half of the swim and I was on this guy's feet and the thought occurred to me, I wonder where the leaders are. And you know, I wasn't in a huge hurry. I was just there. So I stopped and I treaded water for a second. I looked up and the only guy I could see was that guy in front of me. And I thought, man, those top dudes are so fast. They're so far ahead. I can't even see them. Well, shortly after that, we I was coming to the end of the swim and I was still on this guy's feet. We came out of the water and as we came out up the ramp, somebody who knew me saw me and they go, you're in second place.
1: Wow.
2: <laughs> <And> <laughs> the dude in front of me is leading the race and I'm in second, you know, I'm like,
1: "Woohoo!" you know, <laughs> <laughs> not only survival, but dominance. That's amazing. Yeah, so, like, Talk about another moment.
2: You know, <laughs> And, and so I thought, I wonder who this guy is that I'm following. And in 1982, the best guy, Ironman distance triathlete in the world was a guy named Dave Scott. He'd won the race once already. He was coming back, hoping to win his second title. He had dominated every race that he had entered that summer. So I, I ran up next and I looked over and it was friggin' Dave Scott, the best wow. guy in the world. Now, you know, I'm. I, my my IQ just dropped to about three because I can't even believe what ha- where where I am in this race and who I'm next to. And so we headed out for 112 miles of biking. And halfway through the ride, I was still with with Dave, and we made the, the turn and we headed back for the second half. And you know, I'd actually never talked to this guy before. I mean, he was the man back in in those days. And so I thought, hmm, perfect time for an introduction. So I pulled up next to him and I'm, you know, panting. And I'm going, Dave, when we're done with the bike, you want to go for a run? <laughs> and he, he looks over at me and he's just like, who are you? Yes. you know? And, and I said, well, my name's Mark Allen. And he goes, oh, I think I've heard of you before. And, and he clicked his bike into a big gear and he took off. And so I thought, all right, well, guess that conversation didn't go so well. And so I clicked my bike into a gear to pick up the speed. And. I heard this just wrenching, clanking sound, and I looked down and my derailleur had broken off of my bike. Off-road Dave Scott, he won his second title that year. My bike was broken. I couldn't go any further. My race was done just after that halfway point of the bike ride. So that first year, I, I didn't even achieve that goal of crossing the finish line, but I had been with the best guy in the world for a couple hours of racing. That was really when the dream was born. Like maybe, maybe if I take my time and somehow come up with the opportunity, the way to train, learn, gain experience, maybe someday I can be the champion of this great race. You know, the the first pivotal moment for me was seeing the Ironman on TV and just being drawn to go there. Like there was, there was no logical reason why I should go do that crazy thing. But I said, I knew that I had to go do it. And then the second sort of, key moment was that year when it's like oh my gosh maybe maybe i can be really good at this and um the seed had been planted the seed had been planted yeah
0: so you go on to absolutely dominate the sport yourself for almost a decade you know the mid 80s to the mid 90s coming in first in we said six but you've had a number of top 10 finishes in that time you took the podium almost every race you competed in with the exception of that first one.
2: Yeah. That first one I didn't finish the next one. I finished third, you know, I I knew that I needed to finish it to really understand what, what it was like to cover that whole distance. I was pretty proud of that. Obviously, you know, my first actual finish finishing third in third place. The next year I finished in fifth. So it was further back in the field place wise, but I was actually closer to the leader at the finish And so it's like, okay, I'm still improving. And then then the year after that, I finished in second place. You know, as I was getting ready for my fifth Ironman, I thought, you know what, this is the year, this is the year that I'm going to win it because there's only one guy who beat me last year and it was Dave Scott. And I think I've got his number now. And so I, as I was getting ready for my fifth Ironman, I, I just thought, how can I get more fit than everybody else, including the best guy? And I thought, I'm just going to out swim, bike and run them all year round all year long you know i'm just going to out train them and you know that mentality like if i just do more and keep myself busy i'm (laughs) going to be better well more is not always better and busy is not always efficient right and we know this from everything from athletics to business to you name it but i did almost 15,000 miles of swimming cycling and running that year so it was farther than i drove my car I think I probably should have been committed at that point. But anyway, (laughs) I thought it was a smart idea, you know, and so I showed up and I knew that Dave had not done that kind of training. And we ended up very close together in the swim together on the bike. We finally got within sight and we were right around each other after the first little bit of the marathon. And eventually at about the half marathon point, we passed the last person who had been ahead of us. I thought, all right, let's see what he's got. And so I I started ratcheting up my pace. And right away, he started falling back, which I knew he did not want to have happen, right? I mean, when you're halfway through that marathon, and somebody starts pulling away, that can be the race right there. And so I knew that he would be trying to stay with me if he could, but he couldn't. At 10 miles to go in the marathon, I heard that he was five minutes behind me. I did the math, and it was pretty easy, like 10 miles to go, five minute gap. That means that a guy who's losing time is now going to have to turn it around and make up 30 seconds a mile on me every single mile. He's closing 10 if he's going to catch me at the finish line. And I know there's no way he can do that. And so, you know, 10 miles to go, I'm going to be the champion. I started thinking of the acceptance speech that I was going to give the following (laughs) night at the awards, but it didn't work out that way. The next aid station I went through, I, I got some, Nutrition and you know some sport drink and some water and it had no effect. Like I could tell, like hmm, I should be getting a boost from this and I'm not. My energy is actually dropping. And so the aid station after that, I walked through it and I got a a ton of stuff and I just threw it down. Nothing was absorbing and my energy kept dropping further. And I knew, okay, at some point I'm going to run out of gas here and I'm going to have to walk. And I guarantee you, nobody wins the Ironman walking on the marathon. Mm -hmm. You know, five minutes, gets made up like that. When somebody's running, you're walking. Sure enough, at one point, I started having to walk. And so I walked, and then I'd jog, and I'd walk, and I'd jog. And finally, with about three miles to go, Dave Scott passed me. At that point, it was sort of like, what do I do? You know, this is my fifth Ironman. I've been... Second, I've been third. I've been fifth. I've been in the lead at the end of the bike. Now I've been in the lead for you know a bunch of the marathon with only a few miles ago, and I can't win this thing. Dave Scott is winning, and in that sort of very depleted state where I was kind of walking and jogging, I had to pivot. You know, like sometimes you have that big dream, and you're thinking, I can feel it. I can see it. It's going to happen. And other times you get in the middle of stuff and you you go I don't know if I can see it or not but you keep pulling back around so you can see it. Well, sometimes you're in a situation where that big dream is going to be absolutely impossible to achieve on that day in that situation. And so then I, so I had to ask myself, what's my purpose here? Do I just throw in the towel? Do I quit? Do I just sort of walk it in? What do I do? And it, it took a while, but then I realized you know. At the end of the day, I want to be able to look back and say that I got everything out of my body that I could. I want to get 100% out of this 20% situation that I'm in. And if I can do that and get across that finish line, I'll be able to hold my head high no matter what place I end up on this day. And so when I was walking, I walked as fast as I could until the energy came back and then I jogged. And then I jogged as fast as I could until the energy dipped again and then I had to walk. So I, I ended up in fifth that year and the top five were on the podium at the at the awards ceremony. And so, you know, people knew that I struggled and that it was even getting that fifth place was hard, but it was something that I was proud of. And it, and, and in, in the years to come, I would realize in that situation where I was operating at like 20% of my optimal capacity of things, everything was going right, I got 100% out of that. That was a skill that I, I used over and over and over in, in the races that I won. Because when you're in an Ironman, like for me, the, the race was always just around eight hours to complete. And so, in eight hours, you never feel 100% the entire way. Some points you feel great, other points your energy dips, something doesn't feel good, you're working at maybe 70% of capacity or 80 or 60, and then things come back up. Well, Had I not had that bad race where I was getting 100% out of 20, when I was in those races where I ended up winning and I would dip down to 70% or 60% of capacity, I probably would have freaked out and thought, oh my God, I can't win it. But it was just a a point where I go, this is okay. I'm going to get 100% out of the 60% right now. And hopefully things will turn around. And they always did. And and so it it would go like that. Probably you have these experiences, have had those experiences in your life where in, in the moment you're just going, why did I have to go through that? And later you understand why you had to go through that. And you're gr- grateful that you did go through it because it gave you a skill or it showed you a strength that you didn't have before. You learn something that you're able to apply later. And it, it's something that maybe you don't even think about in the moment, but it comes back to you in another tough moment. And you go, aha, the psychology kicks in,
0: but you've said a couple things in there that I, that I'd like to dig into. The first is, is nutrition as an endurance athlete. I, I imagine you have to pr- approach nutrition a little bit differently than other athletes in Kim's world, bodybuilding, right? Nutrition is used to, to build muscle and you want to sustain, maintain, sustain and enhance that. So it requires a lot of protein and a lot of rest in your world, you're burning eight, nine, 10,000 calories during a race. How do you handle nutrition to give yourself that sustained peak performance?
2: Well, race day is one thing. And then the other 360 some days a year are probably very similar to what Kim has to do. When I first started competing, the the science was always saying, well, no, you know, endurance athletes don't need that much protein. You know, they're not, they're not like bodybuilders. They're not breaking their muscle down like that. So they, they don't need as much. You need a lot of carbohydrates. Carbohydrates were like the big thing back in the early 80s when I started competing. And so, you know, I would eat a bunch of bagels and pasta and all this kind of stuff. And uh, my body was just saying, you need protein. You need protein. And so I I just thought, you know, my body's maybe Maybe my body's different than everybody else, but that's what I'm hearing going on inside of me. And so I really shifted away from kind of like that carbohydrate heavy diet to one that was actually very high in protein and high in good good fats and good oils. you know like I love olive oil, I love avocados, you know I mean, nuts, all the stuff that nowadays people just like, oh, yeah, of course you need that. And so then literally like toward the end of my career, almost fifteen years later, you know the science research came out and they go oops we were wrong actually endurance athletes need a ton of protein very similar to what bodybuilders do weightlifters need and you know there's there's just a lot of tissue damage especially with the running that that we do getting ready for the marathon on top of that just the volume of training that we do day to day my my diet was very well rounded i didn't do anything extreme but i was very i tried to tune into the subtleties of what my body was telling me to do you might ask yourself well how do i do that think about your body how smart it is you know you basically over the course of a year you burn about a million calories but over the course of a year you basically end the year at the same weight that you start the year of course we have fluctuations but basically you know and there's no way you could actually accurately count all of that out our bodies are very very smart but We have to be able to listen. So how do you listen? The way you listen is you cut out all of the super high taste, artificially flavored foods so that your body can actually hear the subtle sounds of what you need. So here's my story of that. In 1989, I was getting ready for my seventh Ironman. I hadn't won there in Kona yet. I've been there six years. I had not won. Second, third, fifth, Dave Scott's winning. I'm not. I was training in Boulder, Colorado, and one of my treats to myself was getting some Mrs. Fields chocolate chip cookies at the end of my long ride that I would do every week because there was a Mrs. Fields chocolate chip cookie store like two blocks from my house. And so, you know, I would do my five, six hour ride like I deserve a treat. <laughs> and so I'd, I'd go and I'd get like six of those gooey just super delicious chocolate chip cookies thinking one a day it'll last me till next saturday well by the time i got home there was only two or three left and i couldn't leave those poor little cookies (laughs) all by themselves completely logical (laughs) yeah so you got to put them where the other ones are so they'll be together and then finally the light bulb went on now dave scott was pretty he was pretty clean with his diet he he knew that endurance athletes needed a lot of protein and he was he, he was kind of vegetarian, you know, and so to get the protein his body needed, he ate a lot of cottage cheese, super high density protein. Right. But he felt like cottage cheese had too much fat in it. This is before you could get like non-fat cottage cheese. So to optimize the performance of his cottage cheese, he would stick it in a strainer under the faucet and rinse it to get rid of the cream. So if I'm going to win the Ironman, I've got to beat a guy who's willing to rinse his cottage cheese. You know what I'm saying? So anyway. <laughs> The light bulb went on. I am eating six Mrs. Fields chocolate chip cookies in a sitting. Dave Scott's rinsing his cottage cheese. I'm not winning. He's winning. Okay. So I I wrote a book, book, co-authored a book with Brant Secunda called Fit Soul, Fit Body, Nine Keys to a Healthier, Happier You. And one of the keys in there is living what you ask for. You know, I'm asking to win the Ironman, but eating all of those chocolate chip cookies is not living what I'm asking for who's going to say, oh yeah, to win Man, you better eat six of those every week, right? No, nobody's going to say that. So I cut them out. It took about six weeks for the that craving to go away. But as that craving for those cookies subsided, I started to hear all of those subtle things that my body was telling me. You need more protein in this meal. You need more fat in this meal. You, you're just dehydrated. You need more water, whatever it was. And I realized that that sugar, it, it's like a it hits that addictive part of your brain, that high, almost like ecstatic part of your brain that is the same as is like where morphine hits. You know, it's, it's like it hits that addictive part of your brain and it, it's such a strong flavoring, just like artificial flavors or added flavors, even if they're organic, concentrated, natural flavors, they hit that addictive part of your brain and they mask your body's ability to hear what your body really needs. I tell people all the time, if you really wanna craft a diet that works for yourself, get rid of, rid of the junk, start listening to what your body's telling you and, and you'll know, you'll know what to eat.
1: And it, it it is different for everybody. I really like the, I'm gonna steal one of your quotes. I really like when you say, live what you are asking for. It really makes sense when you really think about it. In, in order to be able to live up to the task, You know, and do things to your point, like cutting sugar, cutting chemicals, no chemicals, no sugar. That all it all masks your senses, right? It it all leads you down a different path, and it's really cool to hear you talk about it because there are athletes out there who don't get to that point, who who still indulge in the cookies along the way, and maybe they have genetic gifted ability where they can do that, you know, and 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 get ahead, and it works for them. And then there are some folks who know that even from a mental perspective when you stick to that mentality of i i need to live what i'm saying i want out of this i need to do it every single day i need to i need to breathe it i need to sleep it i need to think about it when you take it to that level it switches that mentality that you are able to go to a competitor level versus a casual competitor level if that makes any sense
2: yeah and you know when you when you make that switch all of those things that you need to do that maybe initially might sound like you're you're giving up something, all of a sudden you, you get this switch where it's like giving up the stuff that's holding you back. At, that actually gives you the pleasure of giving it up, of saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to eat that thing. And if you make that switch, then it stops being a, a test of willpower because you start living your life in a certain way, as opposed to trying to regiment your life in a particular pattern or a particular recipe of how to, how to achieve that result. Look, I'm not a, I'm not a monk. You know, I, I still, from time to time I'll have junk. I'll have, you know, whatever that I know is not, it would not benefit me if I ate this all the time, but I don't eat it all the time. And so one of the simplest ways is like go, and, and I've actually done this with people, go through your cabinets, go through your refrigerator, throw out all the stuff that you know is that's your treat and then don't buy it. If you don't buy it, you won't miss it. If it's there, you're going to have to have willpower to resist it or to hopefully eat just a little bit of it here and there. And and again, you know, it's what you do 90% of the time that really makes who you are or whatever, you know, both from your diet, from your exercise, from the thoughts you tell yourself, all that kind of stuff. I kind of like to try to live my life like I want to live a champion's life, and a champion's life is just being. Again, it's not about being better than everybody else. It's about being your best. Right. That's a great perspective. That really is a great perspective.
1: I'm curious about one thing. So, Sean, we we kind of talked before we went live on the on the podcast. We started talking a little bit about how I have. Just a scrape, just a scrape of an experience for an Ironman, right? I did. I I was lucky enough to participate in a in a relay in the um, Blue Ridge Mountain in Roanoke, Virginia, and I did the swim portion. And in in order to train for that, because unlike you, I did not have that swimming background at all, so it was completely new to me. I felt like I was trying to learn how to swim and how to breathe and all these things in order to not only not die <laughs> in the water, mm-hmm. um, but then prepare for such a long distance race. And in doing that training, I participated in some swimming camps with some elite open water swimmers that were doing things like swimming the English Channel, you know, really long distance endurance types of races. And I had the luxury of spending some time with these folks, which it was, I I was very fortunate. They were, they entertained me to come along with them to train and I learned a lot from them. But Like, for instance, one lady who was preparing to swim the English Channel in four weeks, she was telling me how her diet was affected so significantly because the water there was so cold that she would put on extra weight to help stay, you know, stay insulated and then survive that longer distance over an extended period of time. So for someone like yourself, who's gone through this many, many times, is there, is there a certain time frame out from the start date of that Ironman competition where you have to go through any phases like that, where you're trying to not necessarily bulk, but increase your nutrition?
2: It's not an apples apples comparison. Like, So for sure, somebody who's doing open water swimming in cold water without a wetsuit, they have right. to have more body fat. As, as an endurance athlete, in general, you want to have less body fat because, you know, you just don't need it. But you can't be too lean. Like the very first year that I went to Ironman in in, in 1982, I saw these people running along the strip there, a leany drive. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, like lean, super lean and cut and, and uh, muscular. And I'm like, I felt so inferior. Like I'm the inferior human being here. You know, I just have kind of like a normal, like whatever, medium build. Well they were actually the first ones to blow up because they didn't have enough reserve. So it's a it's a balance and each sport is gonna have its its unique quality. But as far as would I sort of get a little more, I guess you'd say strict with things as I got closer to the race, absolutely. You know, my season actually each year started with the off season from the previous year. So you go through a, a long season of training, you go through a bunch of races. And then when it's all done, it's, I think it's really good to let your body actually decondition and to regenerate and rebuild and to not be so focused on in your training and just to be more organic with what you do so that your body regenerates, your mind gets to replenish itself as well. And then usually around January 1st is when I would start back trying to get into a training rhythm that was had more structure to it. You know, I mean, during the holidays, I'd I'd go crazy and eat anything and everything that looked good and was on the plate and was at a, at a party, you know, like, do not look at what I'm doing and and publish this (laughs) and say, look what Mark Allen just had, because (laughs) you you know, this is not my everyday. This is right now. This is my off season. uh, Yeah. You know, I'd start to clean things up a little bit as I went through January, February. And then I had a first set of races in late April, May, June. And so by then I was trying to be pretty, pretty good with everything I was doing as far as both staying on my training schedule and then also making sure that my diet matched what I was doing with my training so that I would replenish, rebuild, regenerate from day to day from the training. And then, of course, with with Ironman, which is always in October, those last few weeks before Kona, the last four to six weeks, eight weeks, that was a real focused training block. And within that block, that was also the time where I was like just super dialed into my diet because if I wasn't one, the training would just deplete me to the point where I would have a lousy race. And so with, with this huge volume of training that I would do in those last four to six weeks, I also had to manage my diet to make sure that I had all the macronutrients to, to repair all the micronutrients so that my, all my chemistry worked right and enough volume so that I actually didn't get too light. And it was, it was, I would say, fairly intuitive in a sense, you know, like on a lot of levels, we didn't have all of the devices you have now to measure everything going on in your body, to measure your sleep, your, your heart rate variability, your, your pace, your, I mean, good God, the numbers that you, you know, am I happy today? I don't know. I've got a 27.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was so much more impressive when you like to be able to accomplish. I think that's what's so amazing. And Sean and I have talked about this. To be able to accomplish what you did without those advanced pieces of the technology, that is what is so impressive because you you literally were doing it the old school way where it was pen on paper and figuring it out by trial and error.
2: And, and we didn't have coaches. You know, now I have my, my coaching, uh, the athletes I have, it's on a platform called TriDot and a lot of that's AI driven. So there's this software that's helping me as a coach assimilate and digest all of this data that's coming in and making it actually make sense for me as a coach and for the athletes and all that kind of stuff there's been a lot of talk about there's two two triathletes from norway christian blumenfeld and gustav eden who last couple years just dominated everything like if if one of them was in a race one of those two was going to win it kind of a thing you know Christian won the gold medal in Tokyo. He won the Ironman World Championship. He won the, the half Ironman World Championship. Gustav Eden won the half Ironman World Championship. He won the full Ironman. I mean, and they had the Norwegian method going. And so at first it was like this super secretive thing like, ooh, what's the Norwegian method? <laughs> it must be like secret stuff that we've never thought of before. I actually heard this very extensive video podcast with their coach describing what they did and kind of what they were looking at and how they did it. They were, had instruments that measured like total number of calories that their body was able to absorb per hour during exercise. They have these instruments that are measuring their core temperature. So they would get it hotter and hotter until they finally saw at what point the core temperature is, if it goes above that, then performance starts to fall off. They measured how fast they can run before performance starts to fall off over a given period of time they measured how many watts they can push on a bike before things start to blow up they just all of these things that i'm going they're not looking at one thing that i didn't look at it's the exact same things however i had to figure it out intuitively like ooh i i got pretty hot on that run and i started to die at the end Okay, I know what that sensation felt like. Ooh, I was going pretty hard on the bike. I felt good, but man, I blew up halfway through that climb. Ooh, that was too hard. Now I know what that feels like. And so it was an intuitive learning as as opposed to a metrics learning, you know, and they're measuring lactate and and dividing their workouts into very specific aerobic, low anaerobic, high anaerobic workouts and and getting the mix of that right so that their fitness progresses like this instead of like this, really fast, and then they fall off the cliff. What they have learned in, let's say, two years, it took me 10 years to learn. And that's why the Norwegian method seems so impressive because they, they took these athletes who've been training their whole life, who are actually, you know, have a very strong base of fitness, and all of a sudden they, they, they measure all this stuff to fine tune it. Their performance just like skyrocketed, like, like this. Me, my performance sort of, it, it went up and then I made some mistakes and went down and made some mistakes. I got some stuff right. It went further. And so it just, con- it condensed the the learning curve and the performance improvement curve. So the Norwegian method is, it's there's nothing that they're looking at that I didn't look at 40 years ago. It's just that they have the ability totally. to quantify it versus me having to. Log all of these day-to-day experiences in, in, in the back of my brain, and, and then of putting it together.
0: Mark, I want to ask you one other thing about training. If I think of a of an Ironman of triathlon as an elephant, you can't eat the elephant all at once. You have to eat it one bite at a time. So I would imagine training is very much like that. What's your training interval look like?
2: You know, it varies depending on the time of year. Like in the beginning of the year, like I said, I would let myself decondition from not like I sat on the couch. Like I, I love to surf. So I would surf a lot. I'd I'd run a little bit, but short and easy during the off season, I would bike maybe once a week or twice a week. So I was active without, without being focused on fitness. But when I came back into training, it's like, okay, the first real run where I'm actually kind of pushing it, you know, 30, 40 minutes felt like that's a long way to go that fast, but it's, nowhere close to what it's going to take for me to do a marathon fast in, in Kona. So in the beginning of the year, it just felt like, whew, there's a there's a long road to go. But when you're trying to get in shape, doesn't matter if you're a pro, beginning novice, start from where you're at. Where are you going to end up? Where are you at right now? And then slowly and gradually over time, build sustainably to get to that That place of the endurance you need, the strength you need, the speed that you need. Realize that you can have the ideal training plan, but that your body's not a a computer that you can program. So fitness gains will will not look linear. You're not going to get faster like this, faster, 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 like in a long, nice straight line. Some weeks you'll absorb your training. Other weeks you'll do half the training and you're still too tired. You have to sort of roll with that that sort of stair-step way that your body absorbs training and also how you recover you know you go hard one day okay tomorrow you can still do something you go hard two days in a row you're starting to get a little bit tired you go three or four hard days in a row all of a sudden you feel like you got knocked over the head you know recovery is just as important as any active exercise that you do in your in your training if you're not recovering Meaning you're you're building sustainably over time, and you're getting the sleep you need so that your body recovers, regenerates. You're getting the n- nutrition you need, and you're taking enough easy days so that it's like active recovery as opposed to pushing your body every day. You'll you'll see that you're over time you're progressing, and so I like to tell people like you know one year I, I measured, I, I was like how much faster am I getting day to day am I running as I'm getting fit over the course of the year. And I was only getting maybe a second or two seconds a mile faster every day per mile on, on running pace. So do you think from Monday to Tuesday, I can tell that difference? Monday to Wednesday? Not in a million years could I tell that difference. So there's you'll, I would go through long, long stretches where I felt like I'm not getting any more fit. But you're building, you're building this fitness that all of a sudden you hit a tipping point and all of a sudden something happens and you do take this jump and it was like that in the water you know i'm swimming my hundreds i'm just repeating 110 110 110 110 all of a sudden i get in the pool one day and it's like 105 like what happened no matter what you're doing with your training it's it's okay to like push yourself a little bit beyond where your fitness is today that's how we get stronger right we push a little bit a little bit beyond where our fitness is today and then tomorrow after we've recovered we're stronger faster have more endurance But at the same time, as you do that sort of push up and down, ask yourself, if I do this today, am I going to be like I got hit by a ton of bricks tomorrow or am I going to be able to go out there and continue to be consistent? Consistency is so much more important in training than what you actually do. Consistent training will get you more fit. It'll keep you healthier than any volume that you're concerned about or speed that you want to go or weight that you want to lift consistency is the absolute key to having a great experience in sports. That was one of my mantras, you know, be consistent with my training. So yes, push myself during periods, but at the same time, not so much that I get burned out, I get injured, I get ill, whatever it is. Because of that sort of focus, I had a a 15-year career as a professional where basically I got faster every single year, which not many people can say. And I never missed one race because of an injury which um, not many people can say either. And now at age 65, all parts still functioning, which a lot of my competitors who pushed it too hard, too often, too long, can't say either. That's a,
0: a hugely important point. We've talked to a number of different athletes from all kinds of different sports, windsurfing, to volleyball, to weightlifting, to baseball. Consistency has been a key message across all of those sports. And you said something about recovery that that stood out for me. We do talk about recovery quite a bit with different athletes and you know some people will swear by ice baths, some will, you know, just comment about the the amount of sleep that you need or whatever the case may be. What are your tips and tricks for recovery on endurance sports?
2: Well, top thing is sleep. You know, without without sleep your body can't go through the all the repair cycles and repair process. To facilitate that, obviously, a, a good, well-rounded diet will help you with that recovery when you are sleeping. And then also recovery can be active during the daytime. So not every day needs to be a hard training day. Like some days are actually, even though you might swim, you might bike, you might run, they're, they're more active recovery than they are actual training. Like you're actually going very easy and not that long. And that that helps flush things out of the muscle you actually recover quicker with active recovery than you do. If you're just sitting in a chair, you can think of that as part of your recovery too. But for sure, the top thing for me was sleep. A lot of people, when they would come home from their training days, they'd be thinking about what they did today and what they're going to be doing tomorrow. And, you know, they, they would just be processing and processing and processing. I'm like, geez, good God. When do you ever give your friggin' mind a break? You know, it's like, just because you're not training doesn't mean you're recovering if all you're doing is obsessing about everything you just did and what you're going to be doing tomorrow. So like when I came home from my days training when it was done, it was done and we rarely talked about triathlon oriented stuff in, in the house and a lot of our friends were not triathletes because I didn't want to talk about it in my non-training time, you know. And so I would sleep, I'd get to bed early, I tried not to get up super early if i could you know i was a professional so i had that luxury but sleep is absolutely one of the big keys for me i certainly agree and it would, we preach
0: that for for bodybuilding as well
1: yeah very much so i mean that it's it's especially because what you do bodybuilding is is such a different sport with with the focus being on growing the muscle, you know, and it's so different compared to something like the Ironman where it's, it's, it's endurance over a period of time. You know, I mean, the, the, the training is completely different. The basics, the foundational pieces, the mentality piece, the discipline piece, the nutrition and the importance of the rest and taking care of your body. And I think those things play over, you know, across all sports, really. I think if you have the foundations and understanding of those basics you have somewhere to start. And it took me, when I first started training in the pool, I got my fancy, I got my fancy Garmin watch, you know, and I was like, okay, I need to track all the data. I need all the charts on the wall. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I need to make, I don't have a coach. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to track the data. you know. <laughs> so, you know, I started swimming and I started swimming twice a week and I thought that was so impressive. And, you know, to be able to not die twice a week, I was, you know, I was really proud of myself. And it wasn't until I started picking up the pace, I was listening to all these podcasts, you know, on how to practice for an Ironman or how to increase your endurance for a long distance. And it wasn't until I got in the pool, whether I liked it or not, every day, well, five days a week, five days a week. And I wasn't doing three hours a day or anything like that in the pool. I was doing maybe, you know, maybe an hour. It wasn't until I started doing it day after day that things started to, fall into place. And that Mm. consistency allowed me to uh, gain some kind of comfort in what Mm. I was doing and understand the dynamics of it. And it really was more, and to your point earlier about the data, you know, you, you would trim off a a second a day and I would, there are some days I would look at my time. I'm like, how in the world did I do less time? And it's been three weeks. And I've been doing this five days a week. How did I get less time today? And then I'd look at the stroke rate was different or, you know, something else had an impact on it. I'm like, Oh, okay. That's right. There are other factors that go into this. It's not just, you know, the, there's so many pieces that have an effect on the outcome that I think that's where it's so crucial to have somebody like yourself who has that expertise, that experience to provide those guidelines up front. Mm. So for those folks who are out there who are looking to, to jump into something, to, to get started, do you feel like it, it's beneficial to have a coach out of the gate to get started? Or do you feel like it's more worthwhile for them to see if it's something that's tolerable and get their feet wet first.
2: I love the idea of having a coach just from the get-go because there's so many, so many little nuanced things that can just make that initial building your momentum take place quickly. And a lot of times in the beginning, you don't even know what questions you should be asking, but a coach can help guide you with pointers and tips and equipment that you'll need and just give you, you know, basic structures for your training so that there's no guesswork in the beginning. And then a coach in general is, is kind of a low cost investment for a high return. And right away, I think you'll see, is this something that I really like? And if you do, then you can continue. And if it's like, eh, you know, I I really like just running or I really like just strength training, I, you know, I want to do this one race, this relay. But, you know, after that, I don't think I'm going to swim, whatever it is, you know. But for sure, I, I'm i a strong proponent for people to get some guidance, get a get a coach. Yeah get a community to train with so that you have other athletes who that, you know, you can kind of, Oh, how do they look when they're run? They're faster than me. What's their, their stroke, their run mechanics that's maybe different than mine. One of the challenges for a lot of people who have had kind of a lifestyle of athletics and and, and training and racing is what happens when they get older? What, what changes? How do I, how do I adjust my mindset so that it's still satisfying for me? Because You know, a lot of, a lot of people, let's say like in their thirties, you know, they did triathlon or something and then they had a family and now they're in their fifties and they have time again. So they're going to be doing it. They took a little break and they come back and they're like, God, I'm just like nowhere near where I was like five or 10 years ago. And I go, if you're going to compete with your 20 year old self, you're always going to lose. Okay. So just so important. Yes. Don't even do it. And then they go, well, you know, well, like how? how do you, how did you do it? I mean, you were the best in the world. How do you like stay motivated? And I, and I go, my motivation has nothing to do with anything. that's a gauge against anybody else. It's, it goes back to how I got satisfaction when I was a kid. It's like, what can I do today that will optimize what I'm doing today? So like, for example, I surf a lot. I, you know, and at 65, it becomes more of a challenge. Your body just changes your ability to coordinate all the little subtle things that you need, you know, find motor control and the balance, all that. Do I surf as good consistently as I did 30 years ago? Absolutely not. You know, but that doesn't mean that it can't be satisfying. So when I go out, it's like, let me just see how good I can make today. And if I blow every wave and I have a shitty session, it's like, you know what, at least I got out in the water. You know, I could have been doing a million things that would have been less satisfying than actually being out in the ocean. So, you know, it's like, give yourself credit for what you can do. And and as, as I age, I I realize that that mantra of consistency is absolutely even more key. Just staying consistent with training is an absolutely key goal. It's a, it's a great goal. It makes you feel good. It's, you know, as we all know, you, you reduce your stress when you get outside and you exercise and you can still test yourself and try something new, you know, as, I have seen a a lot of older people that were individual sport athletes. They end up getting injuries and stuff. And those who mix it up with a lot of different things, maybe today they go to master swimming, tomorrow they go to Pilates, the next day they go to Orange Theory, the next day they ride their bike, you know, whatever it is, you're always using all these different parts of your body and you never really dig one rut too deep, you know. And so it's, it's much easier to avoid injury as you age if you sort of mix up what you do also when I went to Ironman at year, it's like, I wanted to see what I can do. And I'm still at that point. I just want to see what I can do.
1: I love it. See Sean hybrid athlete. See,
2: (laughs) I I got nothing. I got
0: nothing. (laughs) So Mark, you just touched on kind of what I think is the third key element, right? We've talked about nutrition. We've talked about training that that third key element is really the mindset. Kim and I have formed a belief. You know, we've known each other for a long time. But we've sort of formed this belief that you know success or failure is a product of your mindset. As an endurance athlete, you know you're constantly pushing your body to to new physical limits, and that requires a strong, uh, you know, a strong mindset. From your experience, how do you push yourself from a mindset perspective to to keep stair stepping up your level of performance?
2: maybe mine is different than somebody else's. I I just love that, that physical puzzle. Like, how do I get faster? How do I gain more endurance? How do I gain more strength? How do I become more efficient in my movement patterns? There was always something new to discover when I was, when I was doing it. And so it wasn't like I got up every morning going, okay, I've got to push myself. I mean, there were, there were workouts that I dreaded. I'll I'll say, you know, ones that I knew were going to be painful, ones that were going to be a challenge and they were the ones who are like, I hope I make it through. You know, I had, I had those days, but then I had a lot of other days that were, that were pushing the limit like this much. And those were fun. You know, the ones where you're pushing the limit, like within a big chunk in a big way, those are the ones you got to kind of psych yourself up for and, um, you know, be ready for them, be ready for the big key workouts. Like I, one of my key workouts that I had was getting ready for Kona, getting ready for the Ironman was I would do a 150 mile bike ride and I I would do several of them throughout the year. In the block leading up to Kona, I would do, I I was training in Boulder, Colorado. I would do the the first of two during that period of the year where you'd start in Boulder, Colorado, you'd ride east through the cornfields toward Kansas, 75 miles. There was this little town called Wiggins. There was a, convenience store and a gas station. You fuel up and you come back 75 miles. And you got so far away from the Rockies, boulders at the base of the Rockies, you couldn't even see the mountains anymore. And so here you are out in the middle of friggin nowhere, riding along in Lycra with farmers and they're harvesting corn. And, you know, it's like that was such a demanding workout that I had to really, really be psyched up for it. When there's some... Workout that is intimidating for you, or a race. Be ready for it, yeah. and realize, you know, I'm doing this willingly. Nobody's nobody's making me do this. I have asked myself for this challenge. Maybe today I'll 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 make it through with ease and grace. Maybe I'll struggle. Maybe I might even fall short. That's okay. I I put myself in this place. You know, when you're in a race, then it then it becomes a thing where it really it. it when things get tough, it's easy to start whining. It's too hot. My legs are killing me. I have blisters. I should have been, I should have done this different. I should have done that. That person's too strong. I can't do it. Wow, wah, wah, wah. When you're in that situation, utter those two key words to yourself that will get you out of it. Shut up. <laughs> you know, get your mind to be quiet. A lot of that whining comes from judgment you're judging this moment that you're stuck in this challenge as bad anytime we judge in those kind of moments it drags us down if you can switch from judgment to assessment that can pull you out of it i feel like crap right now that's not necessarily good or bad how do i get out of it oh well maybe i can just take a breath and relax maybe i actually need to eat a little more drink a little more maybe if I just slow down for a moment in my pace, my energy will come back, and all of a sudden you're like oh, yeah i'm I'm flowing again, you know i'm I'm aware of my breathing, my mind's quiet, I'm not judging i I assessed and I responded, and so that's sort of like a an immediate in the moment that can kind of help you. Suspend judgment. this is not good or bad. just assess where you're at and what you can do to bring the best of yourself into this moment right here, to stay engaged, to not want to have the race be over, to not want it to be any different than it is, to not want it to be cooler than it is, or the not, not want your legs to be better, whatever, you know, and a lot of that is just quiet in your mind and quiet in your mind is, is a process for me anyway, of just taking that breath and, and, you know, breathe in a little bit deeper than you need and breathe out with a little bit more force than you need and hold it at the bottom a little bit. All right there's the quiet because when your mind is quiet then your mind is free and when your mind is quiet then you might hear answers to the situation that you're in that you wouldn't you can't think of logically and if nothing else you'll stop the whining and when you're not whining then you can move freely and your body works and in the end like i said you know like in that moment where i was walking dave scott passes me i'm whining and i'm like you know this sucks i'm not going to win again That's a judgment like, this is bad. But now, as I said, looking back, had I not had that moment and learned that lesson in that difficult situation, I wouldn't have had the skill to win six Ironmans and six starts. I assessed and then said, well, what's the best that I can do? The best I can do is give 100% of what I have in this really tough situation. That skill served me to be a champion. And that's sort of a circular conversation, I guess, about mindset. Absolutely. The use of positive self-talk is what gets you through those two things. And, and that,
0: again, is another theme that has kind of stood out across the swath of athletes that we've spoken to.
2: Yeah. Positive self-talk in the really tough moments didn't work for me. And here's why. And I, again, I'm not, I'm not downplaying it because I think, you know, on a day-to-day basis, if you can kind of catch yourself uh I don't know if I want to train today, okay, hold on now. be grateful that you can actually go out and train. you know that kind of stuff is really really good, but in you know like let's say you know a lot of athletes and I tried this, you know, I would have my mantras before the race, like my self talk statements positive self talk statements like I'm cutting through the wind like a knife, I feel light <laughs> as a feather on, on the marathon, I'm moving across the ground like I don't weigh anything, you know whatever it was, right and so here you are, you're in, you're struggling, you know, you can feel your energy going. First of all, it was really hard in, in those type of moments to, to remember what the heck those statements were. And if I could even recall them, not in a million years did I believe them. I feel light as a feather. No, I feel like a friggin' elephant and I yeah. feel like I'm about a hundred years old. That, this sucks, you know? Yeah. And so if I could get my mind to be quiet, I didn't have to remember anything. And I didn't have to talk myself out of anything. And I didn't have to convince myself of anything. I was just free to be the best I could be. I like that. I like that a lot. I'm going to try that. One of the key, keys in that book that I mentioned, Fit Sulfate Body, is quiet your mind. And Brant and I were teaching a, a retreat in Germany one year, a number of years ago. And this one German triathlete was in there and he goes, you know, I read the book and I got that thing about quieting your mind. He said, and in my last marathon or last Ironman, I was really struggling and my legs were killing me, you know. And I and I, I got my mind to be quiet. He goes, but my, my mind was quiet, but my legs still hurt. And I go, I never said that because your mind was quiet, your legs weren't
1: hurt. Right. Right. It just it just won't affect you. Yeah. Each person handles it their own way, right? Each person that you figure out what works for you. The the person that I went to the swim camp with, who is this, you know, world champions, open water swimmer at an elite level, very impressive. And his, you know, he's he was very much, is very much into the positive self-talk during the swim when he's swimming for 11 hours in the open water in the cold without a wetsuit, right? So there's, there, it works for him. So it was interesting to learn from that because when he was there, he would say, this water is warm. This water is warm. This water is warm, even though it was like 55 degrees, you know, a Fahrenheit. And so, and me, I'm in the water going, this is doggone cold. (laughs) This is not pleasant. It does not feel like a hot tub at all. (laughs) But I could kind of use that energy. I would kind of giggle at myself, you know, I would kind of use that energy to my benefit and go, "All right. All right. Yes. This is dog dog on cold water. Now let's go. You chose to be here. Let's go. Let's go." You know, and so I would try to turn that. So I don't know that quieting my mind was necessarily what I did at the time, but I do I do understand. I think especially if you're in long endurance, I think you have the opportunity and the time to figure out maybe, you know, how, Mm -hmm. how to do that.
2: Well, and you know, just what he was saying is if he's, if he's actually saying that over and over, this water is warm, this water is warm, this water is warm. warm." It may not be necessarily that it kept his, that was what kept his body warm, but that, that simplicity of thought brought him into a very meditative state, you know, like they've, they've shown that when you're in difficult situations like that, like in an Ironman and your, your muscles are breaking down or whatever, that survival part of your brain is trying to get you to quit. Yeah. And I'm sure if you're swimming 11 hours in cold water, there's going to be a part of your survival part of your brain that's going to be saying, this is really stupid. You should quit.
1: 100%. But you
2: can yeah. override that survival part of your brain by doing something repetitive and monotonous. Yes. And, and so just repeating something super simple like that is repetitive and monotonous and it overrides that survival part of your brain that wants to that, that can diminish your performance and so like people ask me like what were you thinking about in the iron man and i'm like thinking like dude <laughs> what am i supposed to think about but you know it would be like well sometimes i'm just counting like one two one two one two or maybe it's even simpler maybe i don't even have the words i'm just i'm just Listening to the in and out of my breathing, and it's so it's 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 a mantra-centered state. So the water is warm. The water is warm. The water is warm. And I'm sure it it was it was timed with his breathing, you know. And so that really puts you into that meditative state that brings the human a human being into this incredible space where so many things are possible that could not be possible otherwise.
1: And I, you know, and I, and I joke, but you know, obviously, an incredible amount of, of skill set and talent on his behalf, you know, and and I learned a ton from him. And the book I've read, I've read a good portion of that book that you co-authored, and it has a lot of really great tidbits. I really recommend it highly to those who are listening. Mark, you've
0: dedicated most of your life to this sport. Now, if if it's okay with you. One of my colleagues, his name is David Lancaster. He lives in Australia and he's training now for an Ironman. He wanted to tap into that coach element and just get kind of your sense for any advice that you would offer for people who are competing in age group, who are raising small children, have a full-time job, you know, other life responsibilities, how to tackle that, that training. Like what would your, your, your top piece of advice be?
2: My my biggest piece of advice is to um, be very realistic on the amount of time that you can train and, and craft your, your training schedule around that. If you put together a training plan that's a couple hours a week more than you can realistically sustain, it's sort of like withdrawing more money out of your retirement than you've allotted for. You know, it just doesn't work. Something is gonna pay the price. Either you're gonna pay the price because you're getting up earlier, or staying up late to do stuff and you're not getting recovery or your family is going to, is going to sustain the, the damage because you're not available and, and they need you to be more available, whatever it is. But if you, if you're just very realistic, like I've got seven hours a week that I can train, then, then figure out how to parse it out through the week so that, you know, maybe you load up a little bit more on the weekends when you have time and you're not working or whatever it is, or, you know, so, so it's not like every day is the exact same template of the day before, but you vary it based on your family demands, your work demand, work demands. If you're realistic from the get go, then you'll, you'll have a great experience at at the race that you, that you're targeting, you know, and if it's an Ironman, that requires a little bit more training. And so maybe you have to have a conversation with those near and dear and say, okay, you know, for these six weeks or this month or two months, you know, on the weekends, I'm going to be pretty occupied. But when that's done, you know we will balance that out by doing x y and z whatever it is like i never felt like at any one point if you looked at my life it was balanced when i was in the midst of ironman training that is not balanced at all i couldn't sustain that level of training over the course of a year it's a very short period it was not sustainable as far as my family you know the, the amount of energy i had for them was like almost nothing however when ironman was done and i had my off season i spent so much time with family, friends. And that was not sustainable because, you know, by the time January one came around, they're like, get out of the house, go train. We're done with you. You know what I mean? (laughs) And so, you know, if you think of sort of balance in that sense of maybe balance over the course of a year through this whole journey that you're on, if there's a demanding period, then you'll make it work.
1: It's almost seasonal, right? For you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely important for any athlete, right? Is to balance your training with the rest of your responsibilities and and especially with family.
1: We've talked about that a lot with some of the other athletes that we've interviewed about how you define the word obsess, obsession and obsessive, and is it fair to be obsessive over a sport in order to be successful at it? Is it a requirement and what that means? And we, we've heard a lot of people define it in different ways and say, you know having an obsession isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily, oftentimes it has a negative connotation and it's not necessarily the case. If you are able to balance it over the long haul, it's sort of to your point, Mark, you know, that there is a way that you can do it without alienating all the things that mean something to you. Yeah, yeah. some
0: some athletes choose to take a partner who's in the sport. Was your wife uh,
2: an athlete? She was, but, you know, uh, even within that, just because somebody's in the same game with you doesn't mean that they still don't have needs that that you're not going to be able to meet at certain times and so it's it's still not a it, it makes a lot of it easier like you know we could head out the sa- out the door at the same time to do training and stuff like that but there were there were still periods where she needed something or I needed something and the other one wasn't available to give it because of whatever big race he had coming up and so it's not necessarily a it's not a guaranteed recipe of success you still have to be attuned to that sort of balance and the needs of others. And and they have to be attuned to how can I actually support this person that is important to me to do something that is important for them. Maybe I have no interest in doing a triathlon myself, but clearly my partner is interested in it and it seems important for them. So how can I support that? And how can they support me in something that I want to do and something that we can do together, you know? And so... Yeah, that's, that's perfect. I think, and that's actually, I think a a wonderful point
0: to end on for this. Absolutely incredible stuff. Thank you very much for being here and talking with us.
2: Yeah. Well, thanks, Sean. Thanks, Kim, for having me on. It was really fun. And yeah, good luck to everybody who listens. Hopefully you guys got something out there that from our conversation that'll, that'll help help you out in what you're doing.
0: Thank you so much. So join us again next time for the Inspired Fitness Podcast. Until then, we're wishing you a healthy mind, a healthy body, and healthy habits. We'll see you next time.
1: Thank you for listening to Inspired Fitness, leading you to a healthy mind, healthy body, and healthy
0: habits. To stay inspired, visit us at inspiredfitness.net. That's I-N-S-P-I-R-D Until next time, stay inspired.